This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. I can't believe I'm even saying this. Anne Patchett, welcome to Better Reading. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. You don't even understand how excited I am. I am a fan <laughs> and I'm a stalker of you. I'm going to tell you this because it's. I was um, a few years back, recent, like four or five years back, I was on a train, the Californian Zephyr, from Colorado to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And it was in January, I think, and we got caught in a snowstorm. And I hadn't read Bel Canto and my sister had a copy because I was traveling with my sister and we were delayed, I think, eight or nine hours, no food, no drink. They'd run out of everything. And do you know that book gave me great solace? That's, oh, that's, that's beautiful. That, yeah. that, is, that is really the perfect book to read while you're stuck. Yeah. And you can't get out. Yeah. Because it's so visual and it's so musical and there was so much oh. joy. Oh, no, 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 no. It's the perfect book to read because it's about being trapped. Oh, as well. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It, it's funny. I did some podcast in London right in the middle of the pandemic that some BBC something or other they were reading Bel Canto for their book club. And the woman said, you know, I feel like this is the perfect pandemic book. And the more we talked about it, I thought this really is. Mm. I mean, this is a book about being trapped in your house. Mm. Do you know, so then I decided once we finally got off the train hours and hours later that I'm going to go to Nashville and I'm going to come and buy some books at your bookstore. <laughs> I didn't I didn't do it in the end because I couldn't get there, but that was <laughs> it. And I just thought, and my friend said to me in San Francisco, so will you introduce yourself? Would you, you know, do a podcast? No, no, I'll just hang about the bookshop. That's what I'll do. <laughs> so that's my well, stalking story. If you, if you do get to Nashville this time, uh, let me know in advance so yeah, yeah, I can I meet up with you. Yeah. <laughs> I will. Let me introduce you. Anne is the best-selling author of eight novels and three works of nonfiction, including Commonwealth, which is another favourite. I just love that book so much. And The Dutch House. She has been shortlisted for the Orange Prize for fiction three times, winning in 2002 with her book, Bel Canto. Anne was also named one of Times Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World in 2012. Her latest book, These Precious Days, is a collection of essays about family, friendship, success in life and more. And as we said, Anne lives in Nashville, Tennessee. Now, I've got goosebumps because it is about family, it is about friendships, and it is about success. It's also about identity, I think. Yeah, I think it is. I keep saying it's a book about death and happiness. Really, without planning on it being one, to me, it just turned out to be a book about contemplating death because I think that that's what a lot of us were doing during the pandemic And the thing about contemplating death is it can really make you appreciate your life and how Mm. gorgeous it is. Mm. And so that's, that's what it turned out to be for me. 
you know, when I was growing up, particularly, you know, in my early 20s, I always thought that as you, when you got older, and I would look at people in their 50s, and I would imagine, which was completely untrue, but I imagined that by then you know exactly who you are. By then you don't have anxiety. By then you don't have uh, all sorts of body issues. By then you don't have, you know, all these things. I always thought that when you were grown up, that those things wouldn't be there. And now that I'm there, I've just realized it's all exactly the same, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Um, And there's a way, sometimes I I think, I wonder when I'm going to feel like a grown-up. And my mom is 84. I'm going to be 58 in a couple of weeks. And my mom's 84 and she lives about four blocks away from me. It's a very easy walking distance. And I function so much as a daughter still. And functioning as a daughter, there's always a way in which you're still functioning as a kid. And I'm trying to please my mom or help my mom or make plans with my mom. How is her day going? How is my day going? I see her every day. There's so many things that keep me young Mm. (laughs) in my mind that I, I do forget I'm 58 years old. A friend of mine, Margaret Rankle, who writes for the New York Times, uh, just had a piece in the paper a couple of days ago about turning 60. And she said, you know, how is it that I feel like I'm 22? And yet every time I walk past a shiny surface, it's so clear that I'm 60. Mm. And that that she was saying, I have become my mother. I am wearing my mother's face. Mm. And it's just that you exist in all these different parts of your life at the same time. Mm. That's the wild part of it. Yeah. And you know what else is part of it now that I'm there as well? Because we're, um, I think, a year apart. Um, and actually, my mother's 84 as well. But do you know what I think about? And there's a thread through your book about this as well is that the life that we live defines us. And that is a comfort that, you know, I feel that largely I'm living a good life. And that has made me, you know, we're always molding ourselves and trying to be hopefully all of us better people. And I find at this this age in particular, I kind of got that, like I've got the right people around, well, people that I love around me. I've, you know, I live in a, in a place in the world that I really love. I have great friends and I have great family. And I feel that identity, I'm more comfortable with it than I was. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, the, the writer Lily King was here yesterday. She came and we did an event at the bookstore and then she spent the night and we were talking about this exact thing that if we could go back and spin the wheel again, we never would. Like the chances that life would have turned out this well are so much more than a million to one. And that so much of it is just blind luck. There is work and there's intention and generosity and all sorts of things, but mainly there's health, which is luck, and the family that you're born into, which is luck. Mm. And I do feel unbelievably fortunate that Mm. this is the life that I wound up with. 
Mm, I'm the same. Although I think that we mould, and you talk about friendship a lot, and friendships are really valuable to me, which is why I travel Mm -hmm. to San Francisco once a year. But I feel that we mould our lives to a certain extent. Like people often say to me, gosh, you're so lucky. You know, you, you kind of, you know, I've got this wonderful job. I mean, I talk to authors and read books, you know. How lucky right. can that be, right? Right. But we kind of mould it to a certain extent, don't we? I mean, you do choose the people you want to be with. You can't choose your family, but you can choose the relationship with your family that you want to have. Yes, absolutely. We do mould it. But I think that the older that I get, the more it does just feel like chance. Mm. Um, and also... There are certain habits that are rewarded in society, or there are certain habits that that just serve you better. One, for example, that I think about a lot, I have an older sister, and we're very close, and she is, what's the nicest way of saying this? She's the smarter sister, okay? Just, I don't know if she was that, but (laughs) just the, the star in school, such a good student. She's one of these people who can do anything. She can she can put an extra bathroom in her house. She can make a chest of drawers. She can play herself. In she, herself. She yeah, can well, hang sheet okay. rock. She can All do right. electrical. Okay. She can do anything. She's <laughs> I'm impressed. Math, you know, like she's just, she's the most competent person in the world. I have had an infinitely more successful life than she has. And there are two things that I always think about. One, she put her energy and and puts her energy still into other people. Mm. She serves other people. Mm. If she Mm. takes a job, she's the person behind the scenes lifting somebody else up. She's always taking care of her kids and uh, doing things in her church and doing things in her community. I have always bet on myself. She bet on other people. I bet on myself. And so all of my energy, I put into my own work, not into other people's work. That benefited me hugely Mm. because I had one job my whole life. She had many jobs throughout her life. The other thing that's much smaller, but weirdly so defining, I am a complete morning person. Mm. I wake up at Crack of dawn every day, bright, cheerful, ready to go. I am my best self in the morning. And as the day goes along, I kind of steadily go downhill. So by the time I get into bed at night early, I'm almost in tears. You know, I just like dying to go to bed. My sister kicks in at 10 or 11 o'clock at night. She can stay up. Her happiest thing in the world is to stay up reading a book until five o'clock in the morning. She will take a red-eye flight across country to save the money and then go straight into a meeting at work. And the world is set up for people who wake up early. I mean, school time, work time, everything, that's my natural clock. Mm. For her, it's kind of torture. Mm. So she's always late Mm. because her best self is at 3 a.m. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's some, there are just some ways in which the world is just kind of naturally suited for some people and not others. I, I'm a five thirty in the morning person. You mm-hmm. know, so obviously yeah. nine 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 p.m. to bed. Me too. 
I, I feel that there are, I mean, you've probably described it more eloquently than, than me about your sister, but I feel that with some people that I know and really good friends, that they butt up to life sometimes, that life, because I, I feel my relationship with life is kind of navigating, swimming, you know, just working my way around it um, and enjoying it a lot. You know, I love my life. I love the people in my life. I love my job. I love the people I work with. But then I know people that just always butt up to life. They never quite find that. Do you, do, yeah. do you know yeah. those people? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And it's hard for them. Yes. Yes. And, and again, I don't, I'm, I think I'm very much like you. I, I really, I always say I'm a cork on the waves, you know, I can just yeah, sail along, same. but for example, I don't have depression. I can get anxious sometimes when I'm overwhelmed, but I just, from a chemical level, mm. I don't have it. Mm. That's not virtue. And this is the thing that I always struggle to remember. That is chemistry. Chemistry is what you're born with. It's the luck of the draw. I'm not a better person because I don't have a temper. Like I don't have a temper. I get mad maybe once every three years. That's not because I'm more in control of my emotions. That's because the balance of salt in my brain is such that I just don't have that. Mm. So Mm. if you're born with a temper, it's always control your temper. And then you do butt up against life mm-hmm. and things are in conflict. Is that because you're not as evolved or is that just the personality, the chemistry you were born with? Mm-hmm. I just I think I drew a really great hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I feel the same. Hey, I want to go back to you saying you only have one job. From where I sit, I think you've got two jobs. Now, I, you own a bookshop and I, ha- I owned a bookshop and also my career started in bookshops. Yeah. So oh, interesting. I, I worked in bookshops all my life um, until well, most of my life, until about 15 years ago when I, I went into publishing and became a marketing director in, in, in a publishing house at Random House. But prior to that, I had been a bookseller and a book buyer all my life. And at one point I had I owned a bookshop in Bondi. That is really hard work. Okay. So it's not the work I do though. I own a bookshop, but I don't work there at all. No, yeah, no. Okay. I mean, I'm not on the schedule. I don't. I don't work there. I never um, did. No. Oh, no. Okay. All right. So I have a partner, a woman named Karen Hayes. We met. We were introduced by a friend. Uh, we decided that we would partner, and that she would be the owner manager. The joke is that she does all the work, and I pay for everything. But I put up the money for the store. Right. I'm there. I do a ton of publicity. I promote the store. I promote authors. I interview the authors. I mean, there are things that I do, but I don't have a job. I don't have an obligation. Right. Um, Karen is there every day doing the books, you know, working. It's tough. It. I don't do that. It, and that is, that is a really tough job. Yeah. But she that's would- the job. She wants, so that's yeah. good. <laughs> but I remember when I, you know, when I was book selling for years and years, people would often say to me, oh, gosh, it must be wonderful working in a bookshop. Just read books all day. <laughs> <It's> like, really? <laughs> yeah. By no, the you end read of the books day. all night. <laughs> that's right. You, yeah. All you do during the day is unpack shelves and serve people. The people exactly. part, the people and the recommended 
recommendation piece is the piece that I loved, you know. Right. That's the piece that I do. The, the part that you love is the part that I do. Yeah. Uh, but I, I don't, I don't do the, I don't do the hard part. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway. Like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Okay, so tell me how you came into writing. So you were born in California and then moved to Nashville as a child. Were yes. you a great reader? Tell me how it all started. Uh, I wasn't. I I didn't learn how to read comfortably until I was in about third grade because we moved around a lot and I missed a lot of school. My parents got divorced. My mother moved us across the country. We were poor. We changed houses all the time. You know, we just, it was the late 60s, early 70s. It was a very slack time, I think, for parenting. And I think that wanting to write really was all tied up in wanting to be able to read and wanting to be able to like physically write comfortably. And so I put a lot of my energy into that. I was a very clever kid. I was a kid who could always tell stories. And I think that you get positive reinforcement for something and you keep going back to it. So that's what I was always trying to do. Tell a story, be funny, be clever that's what I got my positive reinforcement for. And so then I would do more of it and more of it. And very early on, I knew that I wanted to be a writer. And that's been another huge gift in my life that I, I know so many people who are so talented in a million different ways, but they don't have just one defining thing. And I always had one defining thing. And I always thought, you know, do I want this or that? Do I want to do I want to have a job where I'll make a lot of money so I could buy a nice house or do I want to write? No, I'd rather write. Do I want to have children that would probably really keep me from writing? No, I want to write, you know? And, and so all of my decisions in life were based around that and everything's a trade-off, um, but it's worked out. It's worked mm. out fine. Was it a conscious decision for you not to have children? Oh yeah. Yeah. Same, same here. Definitely. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. I remember you being know, 30 and just thinking, okay, well, this is the moment that I have to decide. I remember when my sister and I were little and she always wanted these hyper-realistic baby dolls and they absolutely gave me the shakes. I, I can't even be in the room with a hyper-realistic baby doll. Even now, mm -hmm. they just creep me out. But I had a bed full of stuffed animals. You know, what I always wanted was a dog 
and and there is one on the couch right across <laughs> and, from and me. one like, on the book cover as well. That's and that's that's Sparky. That's my dog, right? Um, but it's again, it's so interesting. When we were little girls, my sister was always carrying around a baby doll, and I was always carrying around a stuffed dog. There you go. Mm. And I never even truly wrestled with it. I remember there was a period in my early forties. And I had several girlfriends and, and none of us had children. And then it was like the, the elevator doors were going shut and they all jumped out. Like they had children at 42. And I remember feeling left out, which is not the same as feeling like you want to have a baby. <laughs> I, I totally agree. I think what happened with me, I say this to my friend Mary in particular, it's the cycle of having a friendship and she's probably my best friend in life, but the cycle of having a friendship with somebody with three children. So it went that, you know, I mean, she was my go-to person all the time and then she had three children and I did see her, but she stopped being my go-to person because she was, I couldn't ring her and say, come out for a drink. I couldn't ring her and say, go to the movies because she had other priorities, but you know, she's come out and you will have friends like this. She's come out at the other end. They're grown up. They're beautiful. They've moved out of home and I have her back. Our friendship has changed again and it's been this life friendship of, and you know, I'm a godmother to one of her children, but it's just been really lovely. And I've, and she's got a great career as well. But what I'm trying to say is that, you can admire it or you can enjoy it from afar, but it doesn't mean you want it. Absolutely. I've always taken such pleasure in my friends who have children and they want to come to my house and sit in my kitchen and have me make them breakfast because <laughs> no one makes them breakfast. No. Or a coffee. Or, or, if, or if we go out running errands, they always want me to drive because my car never smells mm. and it's really clean mm. and just the, the pleasure that they take in someone else driving. I love that. Mm. That makes me so happy. So when I wrote that essay, there are no children here. Um, a friend of mine read it and he was an editor and, and he had a sister has a sister who has seven children and very smart, went to a fabulous university, got married. She had seven children. And he said, your essay reminds me so much of her because people are always going up to her in the grocery store and saying, how selfish of you to have seven children. How terrible of you. You're not thinking about the environment. You're not thinking about the planet. You know, how can you have all of those children? Anyway, I ended up forming this sort of corresponding relationship with his sister. And it was amazing how much we had in common mm -hmm. because it was about making a choice and then having to listen to everybody else's opinions about your choice. Mm. It's so boring. Mm. <laughs> hey, speaking of friendships, tell me about Tom Hanks. Um, Tom's good. <laughs> <laughs> no, tell me how that friendship started. <laughs> um, so I read Tom's book, which was a collection of short stories called um, Uncommon Type three years ago, four years ago. I don't even remember when I first got the advanced reader's copy. And I was, they sent me the book because they wanted me to give a quote for the jacket. Everybody sends me their book because they want me to give a quote for the jacket. It had been sitting around in my office forever. I finally picked it up and it was great. I really, really liked it. 
So I gave the quote, you know, I wrote to the publisher, yes, I'll give a quote. And then they said, would you come to Washington, D.C. and interview him on stage? Sure. Yeah. Who would say no to that? Yeah, who would? So, right. <laughs> what I, talent? I go, Ann Patchett and Tom Hanks right. on stage. Wow. <laughs> so I, I, go, I go up and um, I interview him and that's fun. But he had a, an interest in opening a bookshop. And so he started emailing me. And also his wife, Rita Wilson, is a singer-songwriter. So they would come to Nashville a couple of times a year for her to sing. And oddly enough, you know, over time, we just sort of became friends. Isn't you know that what? odd? It is odd, but it is lovely because I do think that there is a similarity between you two because I did read that book and I remember seeing a bit of the media, you know, listening and, and listening to him on on a podcast with David Axelrod was my favourite. And I remember thinking, I think he has come out of this career unscathed. You know, I think that there is something still authentic about him. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, absolutely. He's a, he is, he's a very smart, very mm. funny person and, and very present. If I emailed Tom right now, I would hear for back from him in three minutes. Mm. He just seems like he's always there. Mm. And he recorded the audiobook for the Dutch house, which has got to be the single biggest gift anyone's ever given me in my life. How generous. It's, yeah. So fabulous. Yeah. yeah. Uh, very early on in the pandemic, he and Rita were in Queensland here in Australia. You probably know this, and they contracted COVID here. Um, yes. So that would have been a terrifying time, I'd imagine, for them. Because, you know, back then we just didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know. And it, and really they were, they were the face mm. of the pandemic then mm. because you didn't, you know, it's like we knew it was out there, but we didn't actually know anybody. And and Tom and Rita are those people that everybody feels like they know mm -hmm. Tom and Rita. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. I remember being really frightened for them. Um, I want to talk about the pandemic a little bit in, in that, how, you know, I've spoken to so many writers that have said to me that life didn't change all that much for them, particularly in Australia. We were in lockdown for a large Time. I mean, we've only just come out of a lockdown of 105 days of not being able to leave the house. That was hard for me. But for writers, I mean, I know that people aren't going to be writing about the pandemic per se, but do you think that that changes, that well, that, that's going to change the voice of fiction, do you think? I think it will. I, mm. I And I say that as somebody who, like you, I just read galleys. I read so mm. much contemporary fiction that that definitely there's going to be a period of pandemic novels coming. Gary mm. Scheingarten's book, which has just come out, is being hailed as the first pandemic novel okay, because I'll it's about a, a group of people trapped in a country house and and how they do. But but definitely, I think I think because I think just in the same way there was a lot of fiction that came out of nine eleven. Yeah, I think a lot of fiction will come out of this. Whereas this is more global. But I do think that we were forced to change our behaviours. I mean, who would have known that we you know we couldn't travel? Who would have known that we, you know, we couldn't have people around? I mean, we I couldn't this second um, lockdown. I couldn't have anybody in my home for a hundred days. And that was wow. really difficult, really. I had to eat all my meals alone. I mean, that's just crazy. And wow. so I think as a writer, if that was imposed on you, it does, I think, essentially change who you are, don't you think? Hmm. A 
as a probably it changed the writers less. You think? Uh, yeah. Because I think that we have had a lot of practice being alone. And I wasn't alone. And I also wasn't in that complete lockdown. Do you know Meg Mason? Yes, I do. Yes, I've had okay. her and I often meet for a drink. <laughs> so so Meg is a great friend of mine. Oh wow. And, and we send each other voice notes. And uh, she's always saying, you have no idea. You have no idea. No one in America has any idea what it actually means to be locked down. And that's true Mm. because, you know, lockdown for us was going to the grocery store at seven o'clock in the morning or, you know, whatever. It was very sloppy, very, very loose. Whereas Meg and her husband and her two girls, they were locked. They were locked. With yeah. the dog. I was <laughs> locked. Lucky I have right. a dog. I was locked. And if you have a dog, you've, you're allowed a few more privileges because you have to take the dog out. So my dog was walked to an inch of its life. Because yes, <laughs> right. <laughs> and he's 15 and he didn't like it all that much. But anyway, uh, it's interesting, you know, um, I um, I spoke to Peter Carey um, in the first part of COVID and he was in New York and he talked to me about his response and he was saying that he couldn't, he was so distracted he couldn't read fiction. Yeah. Interesting how it had a different impact on different people. He just could not concentrate long enough. And and it happened to me. I took to short stories. I I think that a lot of people's reading habits were changed and actually going back to Meg, that was her book, Sorrow and Bliss, was my favourite pandemic recommendation because mm. what people wanted when they contacted the bookshop and we were mailing books, we were doing curbside delivery, but we were, I mean, that, and that really was, I was really working in the bookshop then through the pandemic because we didn't have enough people, but, you know, people would say, I want a book that's smart and funny and won't destroy me, but isn't idiotic. Mm. Uh, and to me, Sorrow and Bliss was just, the perfect book because it had the balance of things that were hard, but such intelligence. And I, and it made me laugh out loud on every page. Mm -hmm. And I can't even imagine how many copies of that book I sold during the pandemic because it was Mm -hmm. the perfect novel. She's really brave, you know, as I met her for a drink um, before that was published and she delivered a manuscript to her fabulous editor, uh, Catherine Milne, and she said Catherine gave it back and said, no, that's not the book. Go away and write another. And that was Sorrow and Bliss. That was Sorrow and Bliss. Can you imagine? No, I And I I remember thinking all that work and that's been pushed back. But what, I mean, that relationship between author and editor, extraordinary that Catherine knew there was another book in her. Gosh. And that was the book. Extraordinary story. That's amazing. She's not, I I haven't heard that story. Good for her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because that's been her breakout book. Um, Now, listen, we're out of time. I can't Mm. tell you how much I've enjoyed chatting. The book is called These Precious Days. Beautiful, beautiful. Highly recommended. Hopefully we will meet in person one day. Um, Thank you so much for your time. I hope so. Thank you for your time. This has been absolutely a delight. And if you come to Nashville, let me know. Oh, I will. (laughs) I'm easy to find. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. 
This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.